mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. She was the people's princess. To fight on the beaches. Oh, wait, man. These are the things that made England. To fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And the king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. <sighs> Hello everyone and welcome to The Things That Made England. Uh, the idea of the show is to decide on what things make England as she is, the country that, despite it all, we feel lucky to be part of. Every episode, one of us will pitch an idea to be designated as one of the things that made England distinctive and we will talk it all over and just possibly reach some sort of consensus. No one is supposing, by the way, that all or indeed any of these things are, spef are specific only to England. That would be a tall order. Simply that they are an important aspect of why England is the way she is. After each episode, we'll post a poll on our Facebook group to allow you, the listeners, to vote and decide whether each idea is deemed worthy to be described as a thing that made England or not. Please do come to our, join our Facebook group and join in the discussion. And today I am very privileged to be joined by Royfield Brown. Say hello, Royfield. Hello, Royfield. Very good. He obeys me. But so, Royfield, it has been a while since you have graced us with your presence. But you're always there behind the scenes. And you've mentioned a couple of times that some of the choices that we have made uh, for episodes recently have been a bit, uh, what should we say, traditionalist, uh, humdrum. Lacking in pizzazz, would that be fair? <laughs> I wouldn't use the expression lacking in pizzazz, but I think one of the wonderful things about the things that made England is we can go back into antiquity, we can look at the Middle Ages, we can look at uh, the Victorian age, 
but I really do prefer to look at um, modern England from, from 1945. Um, I did uh, do and propose the show about... Um, oh, crumbs, wait a minute. Fuck. <laughs> Dunkirk. I was, I was, I was, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> so, so, so I have proposed uh, Dunkirk, which is a little bit before 1945, and I have done the Bank of England. So... I do appreciate that there are things that predate this, but especially, especially for me, it's the post-war world. And maybe that's because I'm the son of uh, the of Windrush generation immigrants. Right. You know, so for me, um, that's the England which I know is still being formed. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, but I think you did bandy around the expression fuddy-duddy. And I mean, what could possibly be <laughs> fuddy-duddy about three episodes on buns, <laughs> one on Shakespeare, footpaths, <laughs> or English comedy? And I think you suggested that we do something squarely 20th century pop culture focused next to mix things up. So, well, stung by your comments, I have decided to do something very 20th century, the very end of the century, in fact, and certainly pop culture. So I propose rave culture as a thing that made England. It, it uh, absolutely has made England and what a wonderful topic for us to talk about. Excellent. Well, the thing is, is that while I did have a brief stint as a raver in the early 90s, I was really very much on the sort of receiving end and I really can't complain to be anything of an expert um, in the field. But luckily... I have a dear friend who is, and I interviewed him. So this is going to be one of our mixing it up, uh, quite literally, format episodes where we get someone who actually knows what they're talking about to give us some detail, and then uh, you and I can sort of waffle around it. Though I think I might be doing you a bit of a disservice. Um, you were plugged into the whole scene and were a DJ too. And I, I really look forward. To yeah, cool. I look forward to hearing about your experiences after we listen to the interview with Tristan. So some background. Uh, Tristan and I were mates and shared a house when we were at Warwick University in the late 80s and 90s. Uh, Warwick University, is essentially, it's a marketing thing. It's in Coventry. Um, but Warwick sounds a bit more sort of pleasant. Um, and uh, so Tristan was DJing by then and I went to a lot of the events that he was playing at and these were a lot of fun. Um, uh, Tristan tried to teach me to DJ and I was truly appalling and found it impossible to coordinate the beats between the two tracks. So we decided my DJ name and tagline would be DJ Luke Warm. He's not very hot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but Tristan was amazing and he could really sort of lift any party and he's been doing it ever since. He is massive and plays all around the world and it's great to have a mate who is uh, truly cool. Well, you as well, Royfield, of course. Uh, though, sadly, I haven't seen Tristan for ages. But anyway, let's have a listen to the interview. Hello, Tristan, old friend. How are you? Very Hi, good to have Luke. you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It is so good to see your face. I know the listeners might only hear our voices, but we're doing a video chat and it is really nice to see you, mate. It's been too long. I know. It's been an awfully long time. I think it's been about 10 years or so. It was like, right, sort of. We can't like, blame lockdown. 40th birthday parties. Oh, yeah. I know, I know, exactly. It was pre lockdown. It's dreadful. 
but I blame, uh, yeah, I blame the kids. Yeah, I blame the kids. No, I blame your your international DJ, you know, globe trotting ways. Uh, yeah. Well, you're right. That does bite into the social time because when I'm working, everyone else is having a good time. And indeed, <laughs> you know, I always went for the two five week working week rather than the five two. So Friday, Saturday, sometimes Sunday, I'm away working when everybody's off. And most of my gigs are abroad. So, yeah, it's a great life, a great job. But I do miss out on a lot of the kind of social family parties, weddings, events, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I know it's one of the many reasons I never made a very good DJ was that I, I never liked the idea of uh, working while everyone else is having fun. That's why I, I couldn't work in a bar or do anything like that either. But having said that, when your work involves having fun, it's not really yes. work. The old adage that if you enjoy your job, you'll never have to do a day's work. However, Indeed. the opposite is true, that had I got sick of what I'm doing, that would have ruined my career and my lifestyle. So thankfully, thankfully, I still love what I do. And it really is continuing on, obviously, what this podcast is about. From But for 30 years, since we were since we were together at Warwick, and uh, yeah, housemates for a while. And, you know, I never really had a proper job since then. I got into the music. Started DJing first, then started producing, and it just kind of took off. Yeah, made the living from the lifestyle. So that, um, yeah, what do you describe yourself as now? A DJ? Well, for the for the layperson, you could say DJ, but if you were to get into the nuance of it, it I produce and make all the music in my studio that I play. I don't. DJ other people's music I play my own so that technically makes me a, a live act or a live PA at a gig right and the, the, you know I've always thought that in the scene that I'm in which is the kind of the trance scene if you're a let me specify the side trance scene psychedelic trance that is um, if you're a DJ you're just a hired gun playing other people's music if you are a bona fide producer releasing your own music albums and stuff and playing your stuff. That's, you know, that's the kind of the real deal. Yeah. So you're not, you're not DJing with two uh, records anymore. Like the old days, <laughs> the whole bank, bank no. of machines. Well, you probably <laughs> remember in my basement when we were yeah. in early rave days and it was just vinyl that, my whole basement was full of records, which subsequently <laughs> got damaged in a storm, and my basement oh, got no. flooded. My basement got flooded, and I came back from a long weekend, and <clears throat> five thousand records were just like covered in sewage. And so I tried to claim on insurance, and the insurance company said, uh, "No, I paid you know five to ten quid per record times five over a." few years i thought that's quite a good payout and they said no they came and collected them all they hand cleaned every single one and gave them back to me a blank bit of vinyl because all the sleeves and stickers had come off blank bit of vinyl <laughs> in a white sleeve five thousand records and if anyone has ever 
touched a bit of vinyl, you know, very much part of it is the cover, the smell, the notes you make yeah. on it, the scuffing marks so, so it jumps out of your record bag. So 5,000 just plain, completely unrecognizable <laughs> music. So I actually put them in the back yeah. of my car. And this was happened at the end of the kind of vinyl era. I put them in the Did back of my car. that convince you to switch to digital? Well, I drove, put them in the back of my car, drove to the local dump, and started pushing yeah. them out into the recycling, the, the big forklift truck. And then some guy comes up and he says, what are you doing? What is that vinyl? I said, well, it's kind of early rave. Um <clears throat> Or rave music, unidentifiable early rave, yeah, rave and early early trance music. And he said, "Well, I'll take some of it." And he just filled up the back seat of his car as many you know. He took about five hundred yeah. records, and the rest the rest went into the landfill of history. Uh, yeah, and yeah, and then, yeah. then the digital the digital revolution happened, and all the music and all my DJing now happens from a laptop. There was a brief period in between where it went onto CDs, but. That was a passing phase, really. Once Why bother? Yeah, and you fit, you know, the entire your entire music collection onto one USB stick in your pocket. Um, why bother with the hardware? Quite easy access. So, t- tell us a bit about that that sort of early nineties uh, rave scene when it all got going. Because we we were at university in Warwick in in the Midlands, um, and which was near Birmingham and Coventry, where there was a different scene going on. Um, and you know, shall I give you a little a brief, a brief history of our potted history? Yeah, is I went traveling in my year off between school and university. I went around the world. I ended up in Sydney, had a job, and it was 1980, early 1989, and the rave scene in England, America, you know, developed kind of world just exploded, and the gay scene in sydney was really really cutting edge they were had been clubbing for probably seven or eight years before i even discovered it so the scene there was already really well established and there were these parties called the rat parties at the horden pavilion place which is a very famous place might be you know akin to like the electric in brixton or something like that and at that stage rave just meant kind of electronic based music it's still there was still hip-hop there was still house there was kind of early techno acid house and some rave music as well which was a bit faster and you know more skippity uh rather than just a heavy 440 there were breakbeats and so all types of all types of um genre piled into one event and there was a real mixed bag of people and that was kind of early rave music uh, it was a revolution. I just can't explain to people that weren't there quite how massive it was. I think it was akin to the birth of rock and roll. Except there was no Elvis and there was no Beatles. It was an anonymous scene created by people in their bedrooms with drum machines and synthesizers and it was an underground movement that very quickly caught on millions of people. So I came back from Australia. I came back from Australia to the UK, and I said to my friends, "I was like, guys, you do not understand what is happening in this music." <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been we've been raving the whole year as well. And there was an event called Castle Morton in the West. Uh, yeah, 
which kind of coincided with the traveller scene in the UK. A lot of people opting out of normal urban habitation and getting in their buses and driving to the countryside. And it was it was a wild and crazy thing. It was fairly anarchic. And the rave scene yeah. was based very much in the clubs, but also outdoor events in fields, uh, festivals. If you remember, me and you, would we'd drive anywhere for a party. People were just crazy to be a part of because it really felt so seminal and, and meaningful and new and a real shift in youth culture. But yeah. about and, and it was also, what about the legality thing? So, I mean, well, we, I we were going to, to factories and... Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of the parties were illegal. So we'd all be waiting on our mobile phones to get the message of where the party was. And beep, it would come, meet in the SO garage on this part of Staines, part of M25, and all drive there. And there'd be... 300 cars all driving round and round. Do you know where the pie is? Do you know where the pie is? And in, you know, some people... we didn't have we didn't have mobile phones. Did we oh, have mobile phones? How the hell you did might we have done? Done? <laughs> it's all yeah. That's very did, true. I, I didn't definitely didn't. You have to call. That's right. They would put out. It was, it was all congregating. I didn't do that, but they, they, they're, they're so congregating in garages and yeah, and the message would get out, isn't it? Pages or do you know what? I can't. Yeah. I can't even remember how the information <laughs> was disseminated. But yeah. we all end up in a field. And once they had the sound system up and a couple of thousand people piling, there was not very much that the police could do. So they let, they let the party kind of continue. So around that time, Castle Morton, Traveller Scene, uh, big rave movement happening. They introduced the Criminal Justice Bill and put, yeah. the, and put the kibosh on a lot of it. But I think that was around... That had some quite weird... That had some quite weird sort of stipulations. It was specifically about sort of repetitive beats, wasn't it? I mean, it's quite weird to make a law based around the style of music. Well, if you were that older generation and they had absolutely yeah. no clue what was going on, they had to kind of yeah. categorise and define and legislate what the music was. And that was as close a definition as they could find that, that meant anything to them. Of course when we chatted a bit before repetitive music i mean all music is repetitive all music has a, yeah. a meter um, <laughs> you know rhythm melody and harmony rhythm is is repetitive so yeah. is rock music i mean but when rock music first hit the scene i they thought they were yes it was much the same thing but it was the devil's music and yeah. of course it was yeah. very related to drugs um, yeah. you know ecstasy acid that was making yeah. people dance and all that. But, of course, it was <clears> – and <throat> people weren't drinking alcohol as well. That was one thing. There was no real booze going on. So that was a real shift culturally as well, particularly in the UK, which is very much an alcohol-based culture. Suddenly young people turning their back on that saying, no, we don't want that. This is what we want. And, yes, it was illegal and – it, it was definitely breaking taboos. Um, but it was so much more than that. <clears throat> it was fueled by that. But it was music. It was the camaraderie. It was the the counterculture. It was a subversive counterculture, turning your back on all the conditioning 
that we had been spoon-fed, right, go to school, get an education, get a job, have a family, get a mortgage. I don't know if you've seen the beginning <laughs> of train spotting, that, that kind of. Yes. <laughs> he does that, Indeed, all of yeah. that. And then Rave was there and was like, yeah. oh, we can actually experience something interconnected, pretty cosmic, yeah. all together, and it's ours, our generation. Yeah. And, not, and it, did, it did change. I mean, you know, I mean, I think one of the sort of classic things to, is the way the football hooliganism kind of stopped. You know, because, as you said, you know, in the 1980s, everyone was drinking and fighting. But then, then suddenly, you know, ecstasy and rave music took over on the, on the terraces. Um, and there was so much less. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They were hugging each other. <laughs> and the thing is, love. it's an interesting analogy that you've made between a football match and a rave. Because I always think yeah. a football match, it's a zero-sum game. One team wins, one yeah. team if you've got an equal amount yeah. of fans, half of them have gone home ecstatic, the other half have had their weekend ruined. If you go to a rave and the DJ does his job and the decor and the sound and there's a good crowd there, everybody goes home happy. So as a as a, as a social kind of phenomena, I always like those percentages. And and they're definitely one of the least threatening environments, raves. You know, well, you, you know, you can people bounce around, you know what, bump into each other. I would say Has that yeah, changed between. I would say yes, between the punters at the party, you'd be on the dance floor and you can chat to anyone. And it wasn't like going to your old fashioned disco where people are getting drunk and trying yeah. to trying yeah. to get trying to pull, have a fight or or pull or pull. Yeah. It was about dancing, about kind of elevating your consciousness, but there was definitely. Where you've got drugs being sold and money uh, and gangs and people, you know, who want the turf, yeah, there was some. There was definitely some edginess going on. Yeah. So yeah, has probably, that got worse? Do you think? Drugs. Say again. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So you're right. I mean, the moment you put drugs into the, the equation, there's always going to be something going on yeah. because they're illegal. That's another question. Well, yeah, exactly. But it, yeah. but but what you're saying is the drugs didn't make people violent, and I would and I would agree with you there. It did exactly the opposite. It made people open, yeah. communicative, and warm-hearted. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that I mean I think it's quite a simple thing, but the way hugging, you know, nobody hugged a fellow bloke in the 1980s. Um, but you, suddenly, you, you know, I think it's yeah, definitely... if you go to Europe, you know, it's a classic thing, men yeah. each other twice on the cheek, hug it out. Yeah. That was definitely part of that that smiley face culture of rave yeah. with everyone hugging, everyone breaking yeah. down. And if I might say so, the separation. Yeah. You are one of the, you're one of the fi- finest huggers I know. <laughs> I do. <laughs> you're, you're quite, actually, you're, you're, you're good to hug. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm about a foot shorter than you. You can hug my neighbour. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and interestingly, interestingly, if you look at culture, the culture of social distancing, that has definitely yeah. set us back decades. Yes. Yeah. Everyone needs to start raving again. Everyone. Well, you know what? Post pandemic stopped. <laughs> well, no, I yes, I know. I never stopped, you know. There's nothing better yeah. than 
answering. And it's a funny thing I find myself questioning sometimes is what is so enjoyable about listening to repetitive beats and dancing in a free-flowing, organic way? Like, obviously, if you're dancing the two-step, the, you know, <clears throat> ballroom, tango, salsa, whatever, they're set moves. When you're raving, there's no moves. You're just letting it go, and you're just free fun. There's something incredibly liberating about doing that, listening to music and dance. And what is it about that? I can't put my finger on what it is, but... And for somebody like me, who's really not a very talented dancer, it was perfect. You know, you can do whatever you want. And no um, one's looking at you, you know, as they said, yeah. as you were saying, you're not yeah. trying to pull a you're not trying to hook up with a gut. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. And actually it raves. And another interesting thing is everybody's dancing together. You're not dancing one-on-one with a girl or with a boy. Yeah. Everybody's yeah. just dancing in the melee. <clears throat> and yeah. it's become more of the, the a phenomena in the last few years where the DJ has become a superstar rock god kind of thing so everybody stands yeah. forward looking at the dj with their mobile phones and all that stuff but back when yeah. we were waving no one was looking at the dj no one was looking at the speakers yeah. facing in one direction yeah. as you might do a concert it was very different yeah. to a, a musical concert that people been everyone you know and everybody dressed yeah. up fluoro clothes outright expressing themselves we were the decor we were the event everybody goes yeah. there the participate to actually not just observe an event to, but be the event yeah no that perfect yeah no, and, very true it was a great laugh yeah. yeah and and i think that was just something that people hadn't experienced before that was something yeah. new and different it's so ingrained in our psyche now that that's what you do you go to a party go clubbing go dancing but if you can imagine a time where that wasn't happening and then suddenly bang, this music comes along. Uh, And, you know, you've got these drum machines like the Roland 909 and the synthesizer, the 303, and just boom, 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 that, and suddenly like, whoa, (laughs) unstoppable. It just makes your feet move. You don't know why. It just does. And the funny thing is about there was that, that moment in time is my older brothers were, I was 18 in 1988. I was bang on that sweet spot of rave where I was up for experimentation, up for something new, just left school, right, what's, you know, expansion. And it hit me right between the eyes. But my brothers had already got into rock music and gone to university and done their thing. So they were two or three, three or four years older than me, but they missed out on the whole wave. just didn't catch them. And they never kind of turned around back into it subsequently but i tell you one thing at the same time as the rave culture was happening you had the whole Britpop thing yeah and and they uh, were interconnected weren't they they were interconnected they're interconnected certain band, happy monday stone roses manchester scene yeah. where bands were playing rave music but yeah. i was a drummer until i was 18 and then once right. i heard and discovered a drum machine i just threw them away and yeah. that was it and and yeah. It, it kind of felt like you were either into guitars or drum machines. Yeah. Synthesizers. Yeah. I went down the rave route. So I, I, in a way I kind of missed out on a whole decade of amazing music, but you really, know, yeah. I was, became a specialist. I committed to 
my scene and what I was into. And tell me, because you know, you, you mentioned that you know you, you didn't get conventional jobs. So, what what what's your actual sort of a working life like? I mean, at what point did you think like I can make a living out of this? This you know this this is working for me. It probably wasn't that obvious when we were at university that that's what you're going to end up doing when we're in our fifties. Not you're at in all. Fifties yet? Because you're you're a bit younger than me. I know. I'm, I've just hit fifty-one. There you go. How old yeah. are you, Luke? Very, fifty-two. So. Fifty-two. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at least it makes no my, difference. No. My body, my body's fifty-two. <laughs> yeah, my body's a lot worse I'm than that. Twenty-seven, yeah. twenty-eight in my mind. Yeah. No, you look after yourself. I keep telling myself I need to grow up a bit. I just can't seem to get into it. (laughs) So, (laughs) how did I? Well, I spent a lot of time traveling in Asia. I went around, particularly India, went, spent a lot of time there. And that meant I could come back to the UK and I was still living in our university town in Leamington for a decade. In our house. Yeah. Uh, and I'd come back to there, and I, I found that the money that I had could go so much further in Asia. I could live on mm. pounds a week. So I'd go out there, and there was a big travel scene, and there was a big rave community happening in Goa, um, you know, 93, 94. So when I went out there, I discovered raving in the tropics. Yeah. Not, not just in a muddy field in Glastonbury or the West Country. It was like... <laughs> in the rain. You can do this in beaches yeah. and forests and outdoor warm weather in South Africa and Thailand and India. And this is incredible. So at that point, I thought, okay, this is how I want to live. And I was traveling with my music and playing at parties and living really, really cheaply. And then people would say, well, do you want to come? Um, oh, well, and let's say what we, <laughs> what we did together. We would put parties on everywhere. We had a mate mm. of ours, Elliot. His dad owned a plumbing factory, and we'd yeah. let ourselves in and rave. And at eight, <laughs> we'd bundle out before the cleaners appeared. And we yeah. would do, you know, twelve hours of raving. We'd go up to the Burn Dasset Hills, open up the boot of our cars, and pump music. And twenty thirty of us, I had enorm- your enormous stereo that you had in the back of your <laughs> VW Golf. <laughs> it was huge. Yeah. And then uh, in the house, much to the annoyance of the whole street, everywhere mm-hmm. we we were mad for it. Just put on put on parties everywhere yeah. so that we could dance together. But then yeah. people would put on parties and they'd say, "Well, do you want to come and play? And we'll pay you a hundred quid. We'll pay you. You know, I've yeah. done my share of of cloak <laughs> dance floors the size of a cloakroom at a hardcore event in Nottingham or in Birmingham or whatever." Mm. And slowly it just kind of picked up. There was no scene. There was no financial infrastructure. So I had no idea. Yeah, my family were like, what are you doing? When are you going to get a job? How are you going to survive? And I was like, I I don't know. I'm just enjoying my lifestyle. And I was lucky enough to just be able to make a living from that, slowly, slowly. And it's built up, carried on going. And, you know, and young producers now approach me and say, well, you know, how do you do it? And I say, persistence. Yeah. You love what you do. Loft. And I think that's the same as any creative field. If you want to be an artist, visual artist, or a filmmaker, or a musician, you know, you're not in it for the money, that's for sure. Yeah. 
even yeah. if it's the love and the passion. And if you can make money from it, brilliant. Yeah. And now you're doing well and comfortably. You know, so it's worked out quite well for you, isn't it? Okay. Brilliantly, yeah. Very proud of you, Tristan. Yeah. <laughs> and and the good thing is, still loving it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's still, yeah. and not because I just want to go out there and get dancing. The, the, the actual production process is so challenging. Making electronic music is so multifaceted. And also, yeah. you know, you've got all your social media and all the bookings and all the, the, the there is being a self-employed artist. Yeah. Uh, you have to have your fingers in many pies and, and, and yeah. well, let's say balance quite a few plates. Yeah. Um, and can you sort of talk us through, I, I don't know if you can even sort of go, but what, you know, so the, what, what are the different types of music? Um, maybe, you know, I'm going to have to try and use some samples or something. Um, well, I can tell you, but, I can tell you exactly the different forms of rave. So you've got, yeah, you've got most dance music is split into fours. I don't know why, but there's something specific, there's something particularly easy for Western music to be based on threes or fours. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. So each four represents one bar. You can have yeah. a kick drum, doom, 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 on each beat. One, two, three, four. Or you can have it on the one and the three. <clears throat> and you would have a snare on the three and four. So you've either got boom, 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 or you've got boom, ka. Boom, cat, the cat being a snare drum. Right. Um, And varying tempos, you can go as fast or as slow as you like. But if you've got a 4-4 beat, that's kind of house music, techno, trance, some rave music. If you're going boom, cat, boom, cat, boom, chikita, boom, chikita, that can be breakbeat, drum and bass, all sorts of other genres that aren't what you would call that straight kick. Drum and bass, uh, well, rave music was breaks. Originally, it was kind of breaks, and then the straight kick stuff came in via kind of acid house and house music. The tempos and the the speed of the tracks vary enormously, and the feel of them. I mean, if you were just to say, what is rave music now? I mean, it's just such a huge, massive, multi-genre now you couldn't you you, yeah. you couldn't pigeonhole what rave is rave is a culture that is a blanket term to include many different types of music and so what about uh do you think you can we can say that there's something specifically english or made in england about raving uh you know i, I feel I, I know it's very international now but did it sort of start from here in some ways Oh my God, rave is so English, definitely. <laughs> I, yeah. They say that uh, dance music house came from Detroit, Chicago, came from America. But what we did with it, <clears throat> the rave culture is English. And <laughs> there's something particularly crazy and wild and <clears throat> out there about English people and when they get on the dance floor and fueled with whatever, whether it's drugs or alcohol, they go crazy. And the English culture, it, that, that set the template for what rave rave culture was all about. I think that was then exported to the world, even though 
there was electronic music coming from Germany and the States and, you know, Europe, Central Europe. The English definitely defined what rave culture is. Um. And so, but we and we exported it to, to a large extent. So, um, you know, Ibiza or like Goa, you mentioned yeah. you, you played in Ibiza quite a lot. I mean, that's become a very English rave scene, isn't it? The, the Ibiza scene. Yeah, I don't think we exported it to there. I think it was already happening there. I think it was like a, a cross pollination. <clears throat> yeah, it was a club scene in Ibiza, and. There was a kind of psychedelic rock scene in Goa, a freak, a scene full of freaks who were already partying, going wild and crazy. But uh, the English brand of raving definitely infected those scenes and certainly the English people who aren't afraid to express themselves on the dance floor. No, <laughs> they don't. Um, And so, and then what about the actual sort of, so, you know, we're making the point there that that um, England made rave, but what about? Do you think that we could say that raves made England in any way? What are the sort of long term impacts on our sort of culture and lifestyle, um, fashion, music? You know, the, it's it's not just been a sort of flyby. I mean, the fact that you're still uh, doing it for thirty years on shows that it, it's it's something that's that's here to stay. But it's also, it, you know, the way it's become more ma- well, it's a mainstream um, and sort of embedded itself in, in culture. Well, in, I mean, in a way... You've Very answered, rambling question. You, you've almost answered your own question there. But uh, in, in yeah. the sense that it has infiltrated society. And if you look at who the biggest acts are in the world now, they're mainly dance acts. And yeah. I was wondering why dance music is so popular and I think it has the capacity to just be louder than a drum kit <clears throat> not necessarily <laughs> louder than electric guitars but on the bottom yeah. the bass dance music is about the bass the kick and the bass predominantly and mm. the bass you get from machines is just louder than that you can get from rock in my opinion <clears throat> so Young people just want that power. So all music now is driven by that rave scene that that happened. And it was definitely a generational thing, rave. My daughter, who's 15, doesn't really know what rave culture is. Yeah. That doesn't mean that... But she's brought up with it. And she lives in a house of... (laughs) Ravers. Doesn't have a concept of what that exactly is. And yet it completely um, <clears throat> it completely affects her life, like you say, in terms of the fashion and yeah. the music and the culture. But I, I hope it's not a dying phenomena where it yeah. just became corporate and got sucked into the money machine and now it just gets watered down into something that can be consumed. But yeah, but you know, you do randomly hear hear little sort of ravey tunes, you know, in uh, lifts, you know, or it has become music. You know, you do hear the background, 
um, a lot, you know, around the place, don't you? And that, well, the, 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 the music sort of... Yeah, the question is, though, is like... Take it over. Does it lose its potency once it becomes part it of the... It's turned up properly. Yeah, once yeah. it becomes part of the establishment, <laughs> and the corporate machinery, does it lose its potency of those people, those devotees of rave? Yeah. Many, many hundreds of millions of people that were into it. Now it's just become pervasive in mainstream culture. But I don't well, think I mean, I, I... necessarily so many kind of people who are hardcore raving now. But what you're suggesting yeah. is like the, 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 <clears throat> the, the jetsam effect of rave music on our culture now i think it's definitely had a huge effect um and don't forget kind of it's our generation so the the kind of 45 to 55 yeah i i i I, I told you about (laughs) about uh this waiter this waiter friend i made in in the place we were staying in greece in the hotel we were staying in greece I sort of stayed up a bit late and ended up drinking with some of the, the waiters. And he was talking about his love of uh, trance music. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I've got a friend called DJ Tristan. He was like, what? He's my hero. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and he, you know, he just absolutely loved me. And he kept on buying me drinks. Whatever. <laughs> Free Racky and Uzo all night. Yeah, 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 it's great. Uh, yeah, well, the scene, scene that I <laughs> do is, is very big in Greece. Uh, and, yeah. And, and worldwide, actually. So, I mean, yeah. English rave has exported itself around the globe. So, you know, English culture isn't just confined to these shores. You know, what it is yeah. English is a very amorphous thing now. And... Yeah. You know, most, uh, well, you know, so many people that are in, consider themselves English, might not have yeah. born here, might have had yeah. many different cultures yeah, yeah, yeah. influencing their lives. And that was another beautiful thing about Rave. It was yeah. cross cultural. Yeah. You know, Rave had no color, it was rainbows you know, and smiley faces. It really was. It combined urban music with, like you said, Manchester, rock, funk, um, house. It was everything. It was a melting pot. And that's what's so amazing about it. I think that that's one of the amazing things about England is its its diversity. And, you know, we are a global nation. Yeah. Um, Very nicely put. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely perfect, and it's it, it, hopefully our podcast does represent that. You know, we've done episodes on absolutely every, everything: um, ska music, ten sixty six, good curry. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and obviously, it'll be, and it's going to be wonderful that we can add uh, rave culture to the mix. So, what we'll be doing is then arguing that rave culture is a thing that made England. Um, well, I think you're right. That... It was definitely a 90s phenomena. And yeah. the 90s were a <clears throat> really, really powerful... It was a really powerful decade for yeah. culture, English culture. Not necessarily the, yeah. 
you know, politically it was, you know, new Labour, new Britain, new Britpop, Ray. Yeah. It, it, it had a real, I think England had a big renaissance in the 90s. Yeah. It, was a, it was an amazing, you know, it, it was that decade when after the Cold War and before 9-11 when, and, you know, things were a lot more fun <laughs> and, you know, more relaxed than, than they are today. I mean, it, it's definitely a very different time and hopefully, you know, that, that was a, a good time. That um, Yeah, and I think it was definitely a liberalisation of yeah. English culture. Suddenly young yeah. people had a way of expressing themselves and, and doing what the hell they wanted to do. And yeah. yeah, the authorities reeled it in, but it definitely opened the floodgates. Unsuccessfully. Yeah. yeah. Well, but obviously, and it was, it was a decade, you know, because it was quite a blessed decade being in that time. Um, so yeah. probably, you know, people could behave in a way that, you know, it, if you've got pandemics and Trump and climate change hanging over you as you grow up, like our kids have got, um, yeah, you know, <laughs> they can't be quite so. It definitely seemed like a more carefree time. Yeah, yeah indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you made me all nostalgic. So that was a bit of a. I know, I know. It was a bit yeah. of a melancholic moment to end on. <laughs> no, I would say uh, it's. It's. <clears throat> I would say we're coming. We're coming out of the pandemic and COVID, and all right. Yeah. There's, there's other. There's always stuff going on in the world, but. You know, I would just yeah. urge people, if your listeners have never been raving, if they've never listened to repetitive beats really loudly and danced, <laughs> as the kind of cliche goes like, no one's looking, in your kitchen, do it, try it, it's amazing. Raving will change your life. It's great exercise, it's great for your mind. You can do it on your own or with your family or with your friends is something special about it and I and it's very difficult to say why it does it it just does thanks for those kind messages from the reverend of rave <laughs> <laughs> thanks Luke right. the lovely closing smell yeah. oh, beautiful really yeah. has I love uh, you Tristan oh, awesomely thank lovely, you very, lovely very lovely. very very much so nice to absolutely you. wonderful
Cool. Um, well, what do you think of that then, Royfield? Um, you know what? He, he knows his stuff. He knows his stuff. And um, he was very obviously there on the ground, so to speak. Excellent. But uh, what about you? What, so, you know, I mentioned that you, you did some DJing yourself. Um, and so tell us a bit about what you were up to in that sort of period. Uh, so mid-80s, I'm out clubbing. So um, so really, I was dancing to things like Nitro, Deluxe, This Brutal House, and then Farley Jump Master Funk, Love Can't Turn Around. So this is, in effect, Proto House and then very early house music. And when I first went out clubbing, this was music which had just come over from, from the States. So right. I was well into house music before let's say rave culture, but I was a clubber. Um, when I went off to university in 87, 88, um, I helped fund myself uh, through that a little by putting on these, uh, by putting on uh, events uh, at Batley Town Hall, uh, where in effect they were raves, but we didn't, we didn't call them raves then. I DJed uh, electronic music, house music, dance music. By the summer of 89, I've moved to Worthing, and I'm DJing at the Zap Club, the Escape Club in Brighton with people like Fatboy Slim, Norman Cook and with Carl Cox. So uh, the next kind of two plus years, I'm a bona fide uh, DJ. And Excellent. by the time I then moved back to Birmingham, about, by about 92, I've kind of stopped. But I have <laughs> a lot of house records and uh, still have them hidden away in an attic somewhere. And have you done any DJing recently? Uh, no, it's been somewhat sporadic. And one of the interesting things about listening to what Tristan said about the story about how he lost his whole record collection um, was um, I had a very similar thing. When I moved to London, I kept, I kept them in a shed and then and they just got ruined by, by all the damp. Um, but and it was a real kind of moment of like, oh, my God. Right. You know, the whole chunk of my life has just been lost. Yeah. But this was early 2000s. Within three years, I'd got all the records I wanted again back because you could just digitally download them. Yeah. Uh, and so instead of me walking out and playing with a big, massive record bag, I just had them on my laptop. I plugged a laptop into, um, into an amp and you could just play away. And, and what blew my mind was probably the last time I really DJed in a bar. Somebody walked up to me and said, do you have this record? I forgot what the record is. I said no, because I didn't. And then I thought, but I can just download it. And I downloaded it. Two records later, I played it. And they ran over and said, I thought you said you didn't have it. I said, I didn't. I just downloaded it. You know, and my goodness, how the world has changed. Yeah, I know. That is quite nuts, isn't it? I, I One of my biggest regrets is selling my whole record collection, about 250 records. They were Bob Dylan and that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, I really, really regret it. But there again, they had travelled around the whole world with me and were warped and scratched and actually <laughs> totally unlistenable. But, I mean, the whole the, there's something about records that is like, is different. And, you know, Tristan was sort of describing that when you've got the, the sort of notes and the sleeve and it does feel quite cool. Um, but, yeah, go ahead. Oh, listen, absolutely. And 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 cuz to have just the label as well is really important. Like Warp Records had this purple label. So, uh Nightmares on Wax um and LFO, these were two seminal 
early house records from Sheffield and Leeds from Yorkshire and had this purple label. And that is almost as important, that kind of identity of the label um, as as the music, because different labels had different styles. So to, to have the vinyl and physically not to know who the artist is, who the record label was, is actually, uh, you're missing a lot. And also, presumably, um, well, I mean, uh, scratching isn't really part of sort of rave culture as such, but, you know, that was such a part of that sort of music. Um, and you can't do that if it's not an actual vinyl record. Presumably, I don't know. I haven't quite <laughs> tried scratching an MP3. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, so, so it, you know what? The, 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 but that's an interesting point, though, right? Because there was dance music before dance music. There's music mm. that people danced to, but it wasn't called dance music. It was called black music. Mm. So um, black music um, in, let's say, the 70s and the 80s from, let's say, a British perspective and an English perspective was reggae, soul, funk. Hip, hip-hop, which is where the scratching comes in, is actually invented by uh, by DJ Cool Herc, who in the Bronx in 1968 he comes to the Bronx and he's play and he and fundamentally he's he's a Jamaican immigrant and he wants to rock parties, house parties, and what he does he realizes that there's certain bits of the record, the breaks, that people go wild for. Mm. So he had two of the same records and he'd pull it back to keep on playing the break, which is where you get scratching from. So you're completely right that scratching isn't a part of house music or rave music, but it's but it's a part of wider dance music. You know, there is this culture, which is black music, which is actually where house music comes out of, of which that was a key part. And actually, it does echo into um, rave music because this is the first time where the DJ, when he's scratching, he's shown his artistry and he actually is the star. Yeah. And then we go into house music and the, and fundamentally what you'd go to in a rave, you would say, well, Carl Cox is playing, um, Norman Cook or Paul Trouble Anderson, whoever, you're going to hear the DJ, you know, and that really does come out of hip hop culture and scratching. Yeah. But something I quite liked about what Tristan was saying is that you know, the way that at a concert, you're all faced in one direction, looking at the band. Um, but at a rave, you don't necessarily look at the DJ because you know, there's not much to look at, <laughs> just some bloke behind a whole load of <laughs> machines. Um, and and, and it, it sort of changes the whole focus of the of the evening because, you know, people start looking towards each other and dancing together, um, which I thought was really nice. Yeah. Um, I've got to hold my hand up here, Luke, and say I was never a raver. Right. As far right. as I was concerned, I was into house music and I was a clubber and I was never into the yeah. drugs bit of it. I I never went to a traditional rave in a field. To be honest with you, I always thought I was too cool for that. <laughs> right. Yeah. I would like to be in a club and I'm dressed up, but I would let rip on the dance floor. Yeah. So the whole scene is, is incredibly inclusive 
But I would say I was part of a slightly smaller band of people who were, we were clubbers. We've been dancing to this from before this was fashionable. So there's a certain level of snobby elitism Hmm. and we are not going to go into a field and and dance and get mud on our shoes because our shoes cost too much. I was definitely one of those. Yes, because there was there was something brilliant about being in a field and looking completely scuzzy and <laughs> really not giving a damn. Um, and obviously, in, in this country, you're often wet and muddy. Uh, um, but you know, there was so little posing. You know, it was there was no you know no, I'm cooler than you. You're you know you're a bit of a prat. There's none of that. Um, and I I I, I really really like that. Um, yeah. Ben. I think that's a that's a that's a fair point. Is that even though, let's say, myself and my friends went to dance and to, and and we would dress up, um, we weren't posing. That's just w- what we did, and it was the most egalitarian of, of cultures. Are you sure? <laughs> I can imagine you in a very very smart in- suit and. If I was looking at you, <laughs> I might think you were posing. <laughs> you might not think you were posing. Well, <laughs> I bet you looked at the absolute crack. Uh, well, to be honest with you, it, it, it's you still do at this advanced a, age a that you're point. at. Well, stop it. Right. I think, <laughs> relatively speaking, in 1989, 1990, when this thing hits big and the Sun newspaper is talking about it. When I went out, I relatively, for me, dressed down. Yeah. But still, I dressed smart. You would never see me in a smiley T-shirt or a yeah. day glow T-shirt or an acid glow T-shirt. Absolutely not. And one of those Absolutely little, little, little so ha- fisherman's hats. smart and dressed up because I was a clubber. Clubbers yeah. dressed up. Yeah. You're going out, so you dressed to go out. Um, I would say ravers dressed to dance. Yeah. Right. So don't get me wrong. Uh, I'm not saying there were two cultures and they were at loggerheads. I'm not saying that at all. But I think it's key that I and people like me had. You know, Luke, Luke, that's not me. Yeah. (laughs) Luke, that is so not me. (laughs) But we just came at this from being into it. Well, five years before rave and i think that mountain down here we go uh great well we're back uh, after a slight uh, technical hitch um and i think that we can summarize that sort of last discussion that we were having was that there were kind of two scenes going on that blended to a certain extent there's a clubbing and rave um, and I mean, in England, ravers had to eventually go indoors, where with our ever, uh, with our weather, and not everyone has, has got a mate who's got a dad who owned a factory. But Royfield, <laughs> you were telling me earlier about how once raving hit the football terraces, something happened. You know, once football supporters were all hugging each other rather than fighting, something fundamentally changed in England, and like we were sort of out of the eighties. Mm. Um. So you have this culture of people being into music, which they dance to in clubs. And um, there always was a bit of a a white working class contingent to that. 
Um, so yeah, so you have the the soul boy movement, which is fundamentally white working class and low middle class uh, guys kind of darting to this music. And in the early eighties, uh, this kind of mode of dressing of dressing up in kind of sportswear leisure labels, uh, whether it was Sergio Tacchini uh, or Lacoste, was like a big part of that. Yeah. Um, however. Uh, and then that goes into uh, kind of casuals, hooligans. Hooligans start aping th- this way of dressing. They're not necessarily actually into that music. The one thing that kind of all comes together um, in kind of like the Summer of Love in kind of 1989 is that um, the, the football hooligans, that kind of very macho, working class, very urban um, kind of uh, culture runs headlong into rave culture um, because the music is seen as euphoric and they can't and also there is the drug element as well ecstasy is is the drug which just makes you want to hug everybody just makes you makes you feel one with the music and one with everybody so literally overnight Hooliganism ends within England uh, because all the football hooligans um, start to embrace uh, this this yeah. new dance culture, and 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 arguably that's when the clubbing culture of house music then for me then becomes kind of rave, kind of 1990 1991, of which we talk, kind of talked about before people dancing in fields, something which I never did. Um, all of these um, people kind of come into this culture and you know I always call it as the day white men started dancing you know because beforehand (laughs) white guys in clubs and bars did not dance they went there to drink their beer maybe look at women talk about them and whatever but they weren't really into the music and they were not dancing but those hooligans and those white working class guys in 89-90 all started dancing and it's fueled by this euphoric music and with the drug that goes with it even posh boys like me started dancing (laughs) (laughs) what were you doing the quadrille (laughs) yes (laughs) very much so a nice light waltz uh, indeed yeah anyway so I think uh, in the interview I made the point that you know rave culture has really sort of permeated contemporary English culture, which is why I think we can say it is a thing that made England. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, So my wife and son recently went to see a production of Much Ado About Nothing in Stratford-upon-Avon. That's a Shakespeare play. Um, And she said it was like being at a rave as the music was really sort of pumping and the costumes were really bright and shiny. Um, and then my daughter and I also went to the theatre the other day, but not to such a sort of highbrow show. Uh, we went to see the children's entertainer, Justin Fletcher, mm-hmm. who does Mr. Tumble on CBBS. Yeah. Um, and he was at it too. You know, the, the whole cast did the hokey cokey and it was set to a sort of thumping beat, <laughs> which like, felt really sort of rave influenced. Um, and... I also mentioned fashion, and if there is something that I'm even less qualified to talk about than DJing, it's fashion. Uh, But I did a search for Rave Fashion 2022 and immediately found a big Vogue article 
um, called Are You Ready for the Return of Raver Style? Um, and you know, sort of the opening sentence was Recent seasons have supplied a fresh wardrobe for the modern club kid. From searingly bright neon to stringy cutouts and all nighter sunglasses, or rave goggles, if you like. Fashion is ready to party. <laughs> that was quite funny. Um, anyway, but one of the best examples I came across for the long-term influence of rave on culture and on who we are in, in you know, modern England was when I was chatting with someone else. Um, we've got a mate called Ollie who's now gone deep into eco-gardening and helps us and our neighbours with all sorts of projects. Um, and when he's not, but when he's not building a fortress to keep the goats in, he's a DJ who goes by the name of Occult, and you can find him on Spotify. Uh, I'll share links and stuff too on Facebook and things. But anyway, um, Ollie did a BA ONS, so a, a degree in creative music technology, um, which is essentially a degree in rave music. Um, and you know, once it has become a degree-worthy subject, um, you really know that something's embedded in 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 the culture forevermore. Um, yeah, so he's got a degree in the emission of a succession of repetitive beats, which was precisely <laughs> what was outlawed by that <laughs> that weird anti-rave law that they brought in. I, I'm um, going to jump yeah, in, so rave one. Luke. Uh, let me jump in, Luke, because I don't think we're really doing. Um, to me, it's always house music, but let's call it rave music um, because yeah. there's the culture that goes with it, which, you know. So this music comes over from, fundamentally from America, and then it gets reinterpreted, um, first in the Midlands and in the north of England. That's Those are the bits of England that start dancing to it. Your Birmingham's, your Sheffield's, your Manchester's, right? Leeds. Coven, These are Coventry. really important. And the country. These are really important centres of um, fostering a UK take on house music. So then you have uh, Mark Moore's S Express, which is a very early British house song, uh, which is number one. And it's actually acid house as well. You have all these UK artists doing this, uh, having this take on American music. Then it goes to the South uh, via London because um, the guys who um, so Paul Lokenfold um, he's been DJing over in Ibiza and he brings back a more of a hippie vibe around it a kind of love everybody vibe uh, there's a legendary mm. nightclub called Shoom which happens in London and that's when London then embraced it two years after the rest of England actually then the next year is the big explosion the summer of love and the reason why all this yeah. is, is, is 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 incredibly important is because actually the uk charts you can make a really strong argument has never been the same since the the yeah. profusion of dance related music has completely dominated the uk charts uh, ever since um we don't really have traditional bands kind of anymore in the UK that, you know, come on and have like two or three albums and occupy the charts for a couple of years and then kind of disappear. Yes, there was that indie scene um, in the early 90s, but if you put that to one side, the, per the pervasive influence of electronic yeah. music 
has just been totally dominant. Yeah. So much so that we have repackaged it and then sent that abroad. And in America, they call it, they call it EDM, electronic dance yeah. music. And you've got your Skillatrex and your David Getters and all of these kind of guys who were fundamentally are still just playing rave music. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I went through the, 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 the current UK top 40 um, this evening. Um, and, you know, it's most of it is rave influenced in one way or another. And, you know, number five, there's a track called, you know, Make Me Feel Good by <laughs> Belters Only. You know, I mean, you can't imagine that there's a band that's like Belters Only. Um, and, you know, then there's another one called Peru, which is featuring Ed Sheeran. Um, and, you know, that's fully electronic and it's got a little stuff going on in the background. Um, and oh. yeah, and there's, even, there's even a raved up cover of Down Under, you know, by the, the Men at Work song. Um, you know, the, the one Australian song that, that has had any influence whatsoever. Well, I don't know about that. Um, in Excess had a copy yeah, so, as well there, Luke. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but there's not, and and there's AC, ACDC, of course. Um, but anyway, we shouldn't, yeah. Um, yes, so yeah, I mean, basically, so I think we can, um, uh, you know, the other the other thing to say bring about, all of this together. The other thing to say about it you is we, we talked about um, the hooligan uh, element just being done with overnight. That um, also what this does bring about is a, a true melding of black British music and white uh, music. And we'd had echoes of it before. So we had the two-tone scar movement in the, in the late 70s. But what happens um, through rave music is drum and bass, which is this Jamaican-infused uh, black element, which is sped up which is incredibly frenetic, which white folks kind of get down with. And half of the drum and oh, bass no, artists I are white. <laughs> I, 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 listen, yeah. I, I, my, I was never a big drum and bass fan, yeah. right? Or, or my, jungle. My, my, yeah, jungle, exactly. But, but yes, because sort of drum and bass, I think, was sort of a sort of sanitised version of jungle, wasn't of, it? Of jungle. jungle was exactly. quite jungle comes linked first. with sort of crime and, you know, gangs and stuff. But yeah, well, my... My 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 Luke, sister had a boyfriend, Luke, and he Luke. he was really into what are you gonna Luke, school come me on now. No, but, it's not the what? it was it was very urban, shall we say, and fundamentally comes yeah. out of an appreciation of reggae, uh, but with those break beats, which uh, your, your mate Tristan kind kind of talked yeah. about, and and it's incredibly fast when you have slow dance music. Um, you need to be able to dance to it. The great thing is about jungle, you can just jump up and down. Anything anything over about 125, <laughs> 130 BPM, it's so fast, you can just pogo and, and whatever. So it's incredibly easy to dance to. And there's an, just a, a visceral kind of energy too. So you're right, jungle yeah. comes first, and then drum and bass is the more, let's say, erudite 
sibling of it. But oh, it's all dreadful. No, because um, my sister had a boyfriend, and he was really into jungle and drum and bass, and came over to stay with with me. And it turned out with a load of records with him, and I was like, oh, you know, what a shame. My turntable's not working at the moment. And then he was like, oh no, I've got some tapes too. Um, and you know, he listened to jungle and drum and bass <laughs> throughout the day. We were having lunch. And uh, you know, with, with drum and bass on, and I was like, we can't, we can't be having lunch listening Wait to this minute. shit. Goldie's inner city <laughs> I put, life. I put on some Bob Dylan instead. Luke, Goldie's inner city <laughs> life. Are you telling me that is not a wonderful piece of music, which is almost well, cinematic and um, you know classical in terms of having different movements, and the amount of strings in that? Yes. Come on now. Come on yes, now. but it's not typical of the general. I think you're talking about so jungle as opposed to so, drum just, and bass. You're talking about right. Gabba, very and you're talking <laughs> <laughs> Gabba. <laughs> just says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, but everything in its place. But it's just not when you're having a nice sit-down lunch. Um, just not in your place is what you're saying. That's when you put your Bob Dylan on. <laughs> what? Not at my Do place. Everything no. in its place as long as it's not your place. <laughs> just not my place, indeed. So true. Yeah. Um, so do you have anything to add? I think we can perhaps, you know, sort of pretty um, much wrap it no, up. Um, we've, we've, we've done that. It's are we changed. saying that? Yeah. Go on, sorry, uh, and, go first. And I, no, no, you know, and I, I, I think you, no, no one could possibly oppose the motion that rave culture is a thing that made England. It's changed our musical tastes. It brought um, the end yeah. to hooliganism. It made white guys dance. It forged a new, unique English sound, which was uh, black and also white. It's been exported. Made people hug. It made English people hug. Exactly. Um, it made uh, drugs fashionable. And we've exported um, the musical style to the four corners of, of, of the planet. So, so yes, not only has it made yeah. England, it's informed the, uh, the, the musical tastes of the rest of the planet in the last 30 years. And you can hear it in any elevator in the country. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Great. Well, thank you very much. I think we will pass over to our Facebook roundup, which will be rounded up by some expert. Hello, everyone. And such a state has fallen the things that made England schedule that I am writing this roundup on the 30th of May. And the episode on which I'm having to report was March the 13th. Seriously. Who can remember that far back? Was I alive then? Were you alive? Do you still exist? The episode in question was about English rights of way and common rights of access. Remember that? Well, what I can say was that the vote was remarkably conclusive on rights of way and its importance to English life. Actually, Luke and I had been rather weak and wibbly and left it open. Was it really that important, as I was claiming? Well, yes, in your view, we should indeed be valuing it 
even more than we do. 93% of you voted to place it with reverence and gentleness in the cabinet. Only Rob demurring with the vast, magnificent spaces of Australia open to roam the lucky thing. I look forward to joining you all on the next Right to Rome rally. There was a healthy debate, as it happens, about the differences in Australian, American, Scottish and English law. Pros and cons is the super summary. Rights might be more restricted in the US, but look at all that amazing public land, national trails and local regional trails. Amazing. There was a satisfying howl of protest from Rowena on the need to fight the good fight against the evils of enclosure. Quite right. And we named names. Stephen and I we named the hideous Nicholas van Hoogstraten. I could not have been more delighted that Steve quoted as evidence the peasant poet John Clare, there's a shed cast on that very subject, or indeed that Eric demonstrated that culture always has something to say by deploying with nail and eye as historical evidence, which is brave. There was a thoroughly insightful comparison on the relative dangers of English and Texan cows between Ken and Steeple, and on which I'm very happy to concede that Texan cows look considerably more scary. The debate, I think, effectively closed with Jano, holding out the example of the Nordics and their wonderful approach to right to Rome. As so often, we look to Norway, Sweden, Finland for inspiration. So, I was delighted with the engagement with one of my pet topics, I'm afraid to say. Thank you very much, everyone. But all of that was blown away by the music thing. I mean, I am passing over quite a lot of posts and discussions on the Facebook site, but, you know, time waits for nobody. It was, as so often, Stephen who took the hare out of the cage and set it running, and like the thoroughbred greyhounds we are, we all took off after it. Construct, Stephen challenged, a list of the ten songs that made England. We all piled in. Rob even had All Around My Hat by Steel I Span, the most sing-alongable song in the history of sing-alongable songs. Billy Bragg was much in evidence. There was a goodly contribution by folk and progressive rock, I thought, from Stephen and a Frank Turner lover, on which charge Esme, I think, led. Someone mentioned Margaret Thatcher. That always happens at some point. It's a bit like a drunk student pouring beer into the punch at the end of the evening and ruining it. An odd bit of classical managed to worm its way with the inevitable lark ascending, but I was personally miffed because bona fide English folks were brutally excluded on the grounds of having Germanic and Welsh-sounding names. And, of course, Jerusalem. Quite right, Bill. Good tune. And I was rather fascinated by Pauline's revelation that it used to be sung at assemblies in schools in New Zealand at one time. But then Luke took us to the limit one more time and created our very own Spotify list. You can find it on Spotify under the Songs That Made England, 111 of them. You might join Royfield's howl of protest at the wholesale inclusion of Pink Floyd, which owed a lot to an in-joke between Eric and Luke, but apart from that, it's a triumph. There are a lot of fun posts actually on the site over the last few months. Stephen was also responsible for an artist that made England, from which I took away the gloomy reflection that poor old Constable has been ruined by overexposure of the haywain. But that was fun. Marilyn introduced the concept of the County Days celebrations with Middlesex Day, for which I will now proceed to make you all suffer, since I thought it was a great idea and will proceed to post for every single blessed 
County Day from here on in. It will be a trial, I promise. We even had time for the best Douglas Adams with a post from Eric. There must always be time for Doogie. If you haven't looked that up, you really should. They are all beautiful, some insightful, some regretful, many wise, all very funny. My personal favourite was his insightful and important alert to policymakers the world over that it is a mistake to think you can solve any major problems just with potatoes. Truer words have never been spoken. Have a look and tell us your favourite. Anyway, that's enough of a roundup for now. Back to you, Lulu. Thank you very much for that roundup. And finally, we're just going to have a quick run through of our thanks for our Patreons. Um, so the things that made England has a Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com forward slash TTME. Um, you know, we've got sort of various tiers. Check it out if you would like to join. And most importantly, we would like to thank... Um, our executive producers, Marilyn, Eric, Michelle, Kurt, Rowena, Steve, Rochelle and Glassy Witch, uh, as well as Guy, Catherine, Foe, Rob, Joseph. Um, we love you all, um, but particularly I love my wife and we won't go into that one again, shall we, Eric? OK, thank you very much. Well, Royfield, mm -hmm. it was great to have you back on. I hope you've enjoyed the experience. It hasn't been too painful. No, it hasn't been painful at all. Dare I say, uh, we talked about a topic which is uh, quite close to my heart. So, yes. Uh, thank you for having me yeah. back. Great. Church of England next. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Brilliant. Cheers, Raphael. Bye. Bye-bye. Hello, this is Luke again. I thought I should add a little note about the music you heard in the episode. The first track uh, during the interview with Tristan is one by Tristan himself and it's called Indigenous or Indigenous, I think it's supposed to be pronounced. Uh, and it's a side trance track. Quite a pumping number. And the track that I am currently talking over right now is by Ollie, who gave me some very useful insights into the current rave culture. Um, he can be found on Spotify under the name Occult. This track cleverly combines various styles of rave culture, and I will post a link to it on Facebook. It's on YouTube. And finally, please don't forget to sign up for Intelligent Speech if you fancy a day of fascinating talks. Uh, it's on June the 25th, and I mistakenly said that it starts at 3pm GMT. It's actually 3pm British summertime, as it's the summer, or 10am on the Eastern Seaboard. You can get your tickets at intelligentspeechconference, all one word, dot com, and if you use the coupon TTME at checkout, you will get a 10% discount. And we'd be delighted to see you there. Thank you very much.
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.